Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm in the studio today with Caleb Anaveros. Caleb, welcome to The God Solution. Thanks so much for having me on, Nate. You bet. Caleb is the vice president of the Philosophy Club, is that correct? Yes. And a philosophy student that's graduating in May. Mm -hmm. I hope he has a wonderful career in philosophy. I can't imagine him doing anything else. But Caleb is somebody that loves philosophy, and we've had many conversations over the years where we've debated these existential questions about the meaning of life and whether or not God exists and things like that. And I spoke to an atheist class last fall or something like that, and in that class I presented several different traditional arguments for God's existence, and I think Caleb, after the class, if I'm not mistaken, objected to the moral argument for God's existence and said, I'd like to come on the show sometime and debate or discuss this with you and my objections to the moral argument for God's existence. So here we are. We're finally in the studio discussing the moral argument for God's existence. Is that right? Am I remembering, Caleb, right how this kind of unfolded? Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Something about like that. So anyway, as we get started, I'm assuming, I just would like to know for the record or just for my own curiosity, you would find this weaker than other traditional arguments for God's existence. So I guess by default you would agree that maybe the cosmological argument would be stronger than the moral argument. I'm not saying that you necessarily agree with that argument, but you'd find it stronger than this one. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's probably fair to say. I think some arguments for God's existence are more persuasive than others. And then the moral argument isn't in that camp of the persuasive for you. ones. For me. <laughs> okay. Well, today we're going to discuss it. And I think before we get there, we're going to kind of just establish some definitions. I'll read off some definitions. And, Caleb, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of these. For all you that are out in the audience, the reason we're doing this is to keep this all understandable and it's easy to get very technical, especially for people trained in philosophy like Caleb. And so we're going to try and keep this understandable for the audience. And to get started, we're just going to define some terms. So morality, what do we mean when we say morality? What does that mean? We're talking about objective and absolute values and duties that are required of all persons at all times. Would you agree with that statement? Um, I think I'd, I'd just say something. Uh, morality has to do with claims about how the world ought to be. You know, they're not claims about just what is. They're claims about how maybe you should act or, you know, what's better than others. So this idea about duties and values, I think, is important. And you would agree they're objective. They're not based on human individuals' thoughts, emotions, feelings, attitudes. They don't change person to person, but they're actually objective realities. Yeah, the moral facts don't depend on people's subjective attitudes, like a belief. So... Killing innocent people would still be wrong, even if people believed otherwise. Or yeah, so if Hitler thought idea. killing six million Jews was okay, but it doesn't matter what he felt. We all know that was wrong. Yeah. Okay. So we both agree that moral duties are prescriptive, not just descriptive. They actually prescribe how humans should act at all times and in all places. Okay, God. Let's define God. I think generally you could consider God to be the all-powerful personal being who created all things and by whom all else is measured. Anselm described God as the greatest conceivable being. Plantinga describes him as the maximally great being or the greatest possible being. Do you agree with those types of terms? 
generally? Yeah, that sounds about right. Although I would want to say some most people want to add something about God being conscious or being a person or having intentions or something like that. Absolutely. Yeah, um, absolutely. Otherwise, you you might have some sort of being who's the greatest possible being. Some people might want to argue this, but isn't a person, or it's not wouldn't be accurate to describe them as personal or something like this. So, um, you know, it would be a different religious idea than God, perhaps. So good or, clarification, but we're both on the same page with that. Oh, yes. Not to say you believe in God, but you agree with that definition. Yeah, of sounds right. Per se. All right. Atheism. What does atheism mean? Well, it comes from the Greek atheos, meaning without God. And on the one side, it's implicit or negative or weak or soft. And that is basically just the soft atheism that says, I, you know, I just see no good evidence to believe in God. It's not militant or evangelistic, per se, like Dawkins, but it's just kind of a soft, I don't see the evidence, so I don't believe type of perspective. On the other side, we have the explicit, strong, hard side of the atheistic spectrum. And this would be maybe more the Dawkins individual that's militant and evangelistic and trying to fight against theists, Christians, etc. to establish their perspective that there is no God. Do you agree with that spectrum concerning the definition of atheist, the word atheist? Sure, that sounds about right. Yes, there are all sorts of atheists. I don't want to say there are just one type, for sure. I do believe, and we've talked about it elsewhere, that atheism is untenable and logically unsupportable, but that could be another argument for another time, maybe. (laughs) I think on the soft side of that spectrum, it's not so hard to hold as a worldview. But on the hard side, I'd say... And I think most atheists agree that it's not logically possible to hold it in a hard way, like Dawkins. I think Dawkins recently said he's 6.7 out of 7 sure that there is no God or something like that, admitting that he was somewhat of an agnostic. Oh, yeah. uh, would you say the same about theists? I wonder, so if you, if there are a theist who, let's call him a hard theist or something like this, and they are certain or something like this that God exists, are you, should you, can you some sort of belief like that? Absolutely. Or maybe it should be a little bit Absolutely. Weaker. No, I think it should be strong. So you need a lot less evidence to prove something than to disprove something. So in order to disprove God and to hold that in a strong sense, I would have to know everything from all time, from all places in the universe. Whereas to believe in something, all I have to know is one line of evidence or one experience of that thing. So I can believe confidently in God's existence because I've experienced God, because I've heard from God, because the evidence for the resurrection is strong, etc., 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 because traditional arguments like the cosmological argument are strong. All I need to believe strongly in God is one good argument for God or one experience of God. When it comes to atheism, I don't think there are good arguments to prove God's non-existence. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess I, I would wonder about the asymmetry there. I don't quite see the asymmetry for why you need so much more evidence to disprove God's existence. But I suppose that could be a discussion for another time, too. Yeah, well, I think it's but for anything. Anything, it's harder to disprove something than to prove something. All you need to prove something is some evidence of it or your experience of it, etc. Whereas to disprove something, you'd need an unimaginable amount of evidence, I believe. You think so? What do you say about so Russell's teapot case? There, for all we know, there could be a teapot orbiting out in space somewhere. Do you have to know 
gather all the evidence around the world in order to disprove that or something so like I this. So I think Russell's case is a little funny because he's using an object that's a man-made object and then trying to say that it's almost the same as God, right? And who are you to say that there's not some object floating around in space? Well, we know that man-made objects don't typically orbit the sun out in space, especially uh, teapots, right? And surely a teapot's not a metaphysically necessary being like God. If we know that the universe came into being a finite time of God and nothing, that implies that there was a cause greater than the effect, namely the first cause or God. So I would say that the argument for God is strong, as a metaphysically necessary being. I don't think a teapot is a metaphysically necessary being that could possibly serve as a cause for oh, the yeah. universe. I think you agree. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. I, I just wonder if that... I was just trying to show maybe we don't need to amass all this huge amount of evidence or something like this to disprove a teapot. So I think different in the God case or something like this. I think different in the God case because we have strong and compelling evidence along with good logical arguments for God's existence. Whereas for celestial teapots, I have yet to hear a good argument for a celestial teapot orbiting the sun or something like that. But I think we mostly agree on on this term of atheism. So naturalism exists in kind of two different forms. And we will predominantly, when we use this term today, be referring to one. The first of the two terms is methodological naturalism, and this is the foundation of science. And it simply seeks natural explanations for natural phenomena. And all Christians of all times and all places, as far as I know, are comfortable with methodological naturalism. We don't have a problem with that. Second is metaphysical naturalism, which asserts that there are no supernatural entities. This statement is not empirically verifiable. I think it's assumed based on some sort of faith by the hard atheist. And for the remainder of the show... When we refer to naturalism, we'll be referring to metaphysical naturalism or this assertion that there are no supernatural entities. Are you comfortable with that definition? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's important to distinguish um, naturalism from atheism. So we had a philosopher come down from Philosophy Club, his name is Sean Schellenberg, and he does uh, splendid work in philosophy of religion, I think. And he's an atheist. You know, he thinks there isn't this personal, all-good, all-powerful being out there. But he's not a naturalist, so there's this, and so he tries to... Um, you know, argue that we should be skeptics about some sorts of supernatural entities, perhaps, and maybe leave room for religion in that way. So I think it's an important distinction because it can um, leave perhaps religious options open where um, for the atheist. Mm-hmm. Good point, good point. So let's focus on the topic of this show, the moral argument for God's existence. The moral argument is one type of traditional argument for God's existence. It's a type of transcendental argument for God's existence. The transcendental arguments assert that since there are laws, mathematical, logical, moral, etc., there must also be a lawgiver and law enforcer. This was first kind of referenced by Plato when he talked about things being good as they related to the good itself. Aquinas, in his fourth way, described this moral argument in a sense and Several philosophers since those times have developed it a little more fully. And in modern times, C.S. Lewis is kind of the father of the moral argument for God's existence. He came to faith in Christ through the moral argument for God's existence. And then even more recently, Francis Collins, arguably one of the greatest scientists of the last century, came to faith in Christ as a result of the moral argument for God's existence. So there are a range of moral arguments for God's existence. Some are good, some are bad. 
Let's start with some of the bad ones, Caleb. Some people might say uh, that Christians and theists are more moral, therefore God exists. In other words, an argument from better behavior. I agree with you. I'm assuming that this is a very bad argument, you would say, correct? Oh, yeah, of course. I guess the idea would be theists. Sometimes people say something like this, but not too often. Theists are morally better people than atheists. If theists are morally better people than atheists, then God exists. Uh, the problem is probably with the first premise, or both premises actually are probably false. But, you know, theists, it doesn't seem like we have this huge wide disparity yeah. in the behavior. For the record, Caleb is one of the most moral, sensible, um, kind-hearted people I've ever met. So <laughs> you're a perfect example that that, that that argument is very bad. Now, atheists use a version of this, too, and I think we all think it's bad. Like Paul Kurtz would say, Atheists can be moral, so God and religion are irrelevant or something like that. It's almost like turning this around. I think when anybody does this, we would both agree this isn't a super good argument to use uh, for or against God's existence. Correct? Yeah, or sometimes people say things like, on the whole, theists. I don't know, maybe maybe some people would want to say something like this, that theists are worse people than atheists. That just seems implausible to me. In some cases, it's very true, though, unfortunately, yeah. I think that that's the whole point of the Bible's message is that we're sinful and need a Savior. So I know that just being a believer of sorts doesn't make you a better person than anyone. Okay, another argument that's not very good for God's existence is the argument that God is necessary for humans to have moral knowledge. So again, this isn't a great argument, correct, Caleb? You would not buy this. No, I don't think so. I would not buy this. <laughs> <laughs> if if there were some naturalistic foundation for moral impulses, for example, natural selection, that would be enough for human knowledge of moral values, I think. I mean, I assume that even if there wasn't a God, if we had certain moral convictions, now that's where I'm going to differ. I, don't, I wouldn't say that they were prescriptive. I'd say they we're just descriptive of how we feel. But if we had those, we could at least talk about them. So it's wrong to say that we can't have moral language or moral knowledge yeah, if, without. If, if by knowledge you just mean beliefs, moral beliefs, then I think everyone would agree that you don't need to have God to have moral yes. beliefs or moral feelings or something like this. Wouldn't be a very good argument. And, of course, not many Christians use this either. Uh, some atheists, again, like John Arthur, turn the table here and they say, in similar terms that um, since we can use moral terms without referring to God, then God's existence is kind of irrelevant or something like that. And I would say that, again, is kind of the same version of this argument, and it's not very good as far as I can tell. Agreed? Yeah, I guess I'm not so sure what the argument is, but... Yeah, um. kind of messy. <laughs> not too great. Okay, let's move on to keep our time going here. Arguments that atheism is false because it can't answer moral dilemmas... It's not very strong, but I think to contradict this one, the atheist must provide a grounded, objective, absolute, and true foundation for morality, which is going to be the whole focus of the next part of our discussion. And so, again, I wouldn't say that atheism is false because it can't answer moral dilemmas necessarily, because, of course, you have made very good cases for not harming animals and things like that. So you, again, blow up this argument for God's existence, for example. Yeah, I guess the idea is, um, so people will say things like, how does the atheist decide whether they ought to steal or not once in a while? Well, this just ignores, you know, centuries of secular moral thought in deciding how, how you can make moral decisions without reference 
to God, which isn't to say, of course, maybe what this is what the author got, Arthur guy who mentioned earlier was getting at, that that somehow make, disproves God's existence. Of course not. But yeah. it, does, it does seem that, you, you can, of course, atheists have, can appeal to a whole bunch of moral principles to resolve uh, moral dilemmas and deliberate morally. So here we come to the main gist of the moral argument for God's existence, and this is the one that most Christians use and the one that most atheists reject, and so we'll talk about it today. And it kind of goes like this. Here's C.S. Lewis's version. C.S. Lewis says, Conscience reveals to us a moral law whose source cannot be found in the natural world, thus pointing to a supernatural lawgiver. And again, this is what led him to faith in Christ, It also led Francis Collins to faith in Christ. It could also be stated like this. Moral laws imply a moral lawgiver. There is an objective moral law. Therefore, there is a moral lawgiver. In other words, God. Or William Lane Craig defends another similar version of this, stating, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist. Therefore, God exists. I'm guessing this is where we're going to disagree most, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I guess those are all different versions, but maybe we could focus on William Lane Craig's version. So, a lot of people, some people might challenge it by denying um, that there are these objective moral facts. Some people might do this. And you don't do that. But that's not what I'm going to do. So, I'm going to deny the first premise that if God doesn't exist, there are no objective moral facts. I don't know why, uh, or I don't see any good reason for thinking that moral facts would somehow depend on God's existence. All right. And this is what we'll be discussing. Exactly. All right, I wrote in my little notes here for the show that I assume your disagreement is with premise one, so I kind of anticipated that. Just for the record, a lot of atheists will go against premise two. I've seen this numerous times. Uh, Dawkins famously challenged premise two. I won't read the quote, but that's from The God Delusion, I believe. Also, others like Bertrand Russell and Nietzsche and Michael Ruse and Sartre and Many others have disagreed with premise two, but I know that you do not disagree with premise two. And I think disagreeing with premise two is difficult. Once in a debate here on this campus, one of the atheists we were debating disagreed with premise two, and I said, if you're right, would it be okay for me to uh, stab you with a large knife? And he said, I would find it unpleasant, but I couldn't say that it was wrong. And at that point, I think he lost the debate in everyone's mind, because we all know that that's kind of not correct. So let's focus where the disagreement is. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. So discussing that, why do you think that that is wrong? So the first thing I want to say is this, sometimes this argument is framed in an unhelpful way um, that maybe makes the naturalists look um, like they have a lot of work to do. So people ask, you know, can you establish what moral facts are and that they're objective, what they are, what... Um, and so on, in the naturalist worldview. There's a certain sense in which this is hard to do because it's hard to come up with moral theories. So we should note that all the naturalist has to do is show they have just a good grounding as a theist. uh, And I think they have these sorts of resources. So, um, and then another quick point. One thing I want to say, though, a lot of people give this argument lip service, and it seems to... um, convince a lot of people, perhaps. I think William Lane Craig actually says that this is one of his most convincing arguments in his book, Reasonable Faith, um, which is peculiar because I think it's one of the less convincing ones to me at any rate. But there's a certain sense in which this is counterintuitive. So um, suppose, so there's, 
I describe someone who seems good to you, like Bill Gates or something like this. Bill Gates, you know, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have saved millions of lives, probably. Um, and then I describe, you know, some case in which there's some great evil going on. You know, a child, an innocent child is being tortured or something like this. And, you know, I ask you, is this wrong? And then you say, well, does God exist or not? It seems somewhat irrelevant. It seems counterintuitive to me, at any rate, that God's existence is needed to explain why child torture is wrong or that why Bill Gates is good. You can say they're good in a way that doesn't depend on God. Okay, so why is that? Why is child torture wrong in the absence of God? So let's say God does not exist. I'm assuming that you endorse a monistic view of the universe. There is nothing more than matter and atoms. So why would it be wrong for a child to be tortured mercilessly for fun and entertainment if God does not exist? Uh, so I guess it just depends by what you mean by nothing more than matter and atoms. Of course, there are things like uh, sentient beings on the atlas views. They, they can experience pain and so on. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry for interrupting you there. Yeah, so a sentient being, though, ultimately, at the end of the day, is just one conglomeration of atoms and molecules. And their pain is nothing more than synapses firing a certain way, for example, as opposed to a different way. So it's really just materialism at the end of the day, correct? I would want to say you can be a naturalist without being a thoroughgoing physicalist. And so you could say there they are these conscious properties or something like this, like the ability to feel pain or like what it's like to be in a certain state, this feeling about what it's like. That doesn't reduce just to brain states. Um, so I, I don't know. I think you could say something like this. Maybe be, you'd be a little bit more liberal about your ontology, perhaps. Um, so I don't think you'd have to say that. So you do believe there's a bit of a dualistic sense. nature to the universe. There's more than just matter. Yes, perhaps. I think I think the technical word for this might be property dualist. You could think there might be two sorts of properties in the world, and um, the property of being conscious isn't reducible to physical facts, but it's a property that's held by things like brains or something like this. So you wouldn't have to stipulate that they're souls. Um, so that would be. But that you couldn't say that there aren't in that case, correct? Well, there wouldn't be souls on the property dualist view. If everything was reducible to matter, there would not be. But I think you just said that you don't believe everything's reducible to strictly matter. In other words, there's something more than just matter. There's this dualistic nature to the universe, correct? Yeah, I suppose that you'd want to say that the things that are conscious are physical things, brains, but their, their conscious states uh, aren't completely reducible. It's a, it's a sort of property that's not reducible to um, purely physical facts. But the bearers of those states are physical things, not something like a soul. Okay, but what it's a little I bit it's a little bit technical, I suppose. <laughs> but I don't think you, I suppose uh, some people do argue that if you're a property dualist, you should just be a what, what's it called a substance dualist and just say there are souls. Um, by the way, I don't really see how this debate comes out too much on the moral argument. So, you know, suppose there are these immaterial things called souls. Why does that all of a sudden make it? any more difficult to explain why they're moral facts or easier or so so we're going, relevant. Yeah, we're discussing why it would be wrong if materialism is all there is, if matter is all there is, why would it be wrong that a, a child or an animal or anything for that matter be tortured for fun, gratuitously? Why would that be wrong if it's nothing more than a collection of atoms over here compared to a collection of 
atoms and molecules over here. And I think the only way to get out of that is through some kind of dualistic perspective on nature. I think we both know that there's more to that little girl than just atoms and molecules. And if a young girl is being raped and tortured, my wife went and worked with girls rescued from sex slavery in Cambodia. And if a young girl is being raped and tortured in Cambodia, we both know, and we all know that there's more than just molecules. But I think on a strict, hard atheist view, there isn't more than just molecules. So I guess that's where it's pertinent to the discussion. If the atheist on your view has to deny that there are things like pain or something like that, I suppose that'd be a little implausible. No, yeah, but I wouldn't say pain. I, I would so say there pain is, is irrelevant. I mean, so there is more on... Pain is just... Or one. suffering. Yeah, I'd say if, if all there is is matter, who cares about suffering or pain or any of that stuff? There's no reason to believe that that's wrong compared to comfort or why the two are... Why one is better. See, the words better or wrong imply a standard. I guess that's what I'm getting at is where's this standard that says okay. pain is wrong and comfort is good. Torture is wrong and altruism is good. Where is that standard? Well, so maybe we can go back to, to what I said in the beginning. So I think sometimes if you ask, you know, what's the standard for morality? Well, you know, philosophers have come up with many different ways about sorting out moral theories, and there's a huge disagreement. But all the naturalist has to do is say, I can give a standard that's just as good as the theists or something like this. So in some way, I want to ask, you know, what's the theist's explanation for moral facts or something like this? Um, in my view, actually, I don't think moral facts are the sorts of things that are probably self-explaining or something like this. They, um, uh, how would you put this? Um, they don't need an explanation. So they're necessary facts. They're facts that couldn't fail to exist. So if you go to the case where, you know, there's a child being tortured, or raped or something like this. You know, there's no possible way that that could be something that's permissible, that's morally okay to do. In every possible world, as a philosopher might like to say, you know, it's wrong to torture innocent children. Um, and so it seems to me like this is a fact that's sort of self-explaining or something like this, or at least maybe you can explain it in terms of other facts, but at the end of the day, it's just going to reduce or be explained by some moral facts like you don't cause unnecessary suffering or something like this. That isn't going to have, it's going to just be an explanation or something. So or it's not going to need an explanation. I can't I imagine anything not needing an explanation. I can't. Oh, yes, yeah. you can. So suppose God exists. Does God have an explanation? Well, that's applying the law of causality to the cause of causality. And that's that's assuming that the creator of natural laws and causal relationships oh, okay. is himself susceptible to those laws that he created. So I would say it's irrelevant at this point. That's obviously we would both agree that that's one of the places Dawkins fails. Well, but no, I think I think they're actually fairly similar. So the theist wants to say God's existence is sort of self-explaining. Why? Because God can't fail to exist or something like well, that. Well, I wouldn't go that route necessarily. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. And I, I guess I want to say the same about these sorts of moral facts, perhaps. You know, these moral facts are necessary facts. In the same way that 2 plus 2 equals 4, you know, couldn't fail to be true. Well, that'll have to do it for this week's interview with Caleb Anaveros. Next week, tune in for the second half of the interview. We closed with Caleb describing why he thinks moral facts are just self-existent or don't need an explanation. I obviously disagree with 
that statement, as you just heard. We'll get into it more next week. I really do hope you'll tune in for the rest of that conversation. Well, I would also like to invite you to connect this week. We'll be meeting this Tuesday at Noble 125 at 6 p.m. Again, that's Tuesday, Noble 125 at 6 p.m. And it'd be a great place to come and hang out and meet some other people and grow in your walk with God. I'd also like to invite you to a local church this morning. You could go to GodSolutionShow.com to see a list of local churches. And as we close out the show, having discussed the moral argument for God's existence, I want to remind you that this is just one of very many good arguments for God's existence. And I would like you to take the next step and come to him this morning saying, Jesus, I need you. Please forgive my sins. Please come into my life. Please be my Savior and Lord. I know that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. The Bible says the second you take that step of faith, expressing it through prayer, you will be adopted into God's very family. I hope you'll take that step this morning if you haven't already. Well, as I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I hope you'll have a wonderful afternoon, and I hope that you grow closer to Christ today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm